You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello, and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Alessandra Guerra, co-founder of Nori. I'm stepping in for Ross today because he is celebrating his wife, Kendra's birthday. She deserves a day off. We are nothing, uh, these Nori knots, without our loved ones and uh, support system. So happy birthday, Kendra. I'm really excited for today's podcast. I kind of told our guests because we're going to talk about fuel. So Christoph, you want to introduce our guests? Happily. And Alessandra, I am so glad to be doing this podcast with you. And I wouldn't throw yourself under the bus. You are way more prepared to talk on this <laughs> podcast than Ross is. He doesn't know anything about fuels. We so. love you, Ross. No offense. <laughs> yeah, you're actually the one with the engineering degree. But sitting across from us, they traveled all the way to the Nori office from various parts of the country. They're actually here for a conference. And we had met a couple of weeks ago through a mutual connection and in the sort of carbon to value, carbon removal space. It's important that entrepreneurs kind of know what the other is up to and figure out ways that we can potentially sort of say one plus one equals three and where are those opportunities and hey let's change the world let's reverse climate change how are we going to do it i don't know maybe we'll find out on this podcast we like to start with people's story and really the origins of how they got to where they are and it's another one of those where we sort of get the one-two punch because to my i don't know what what is it when it's diagonally across from the table okay. we've got steven johnson he is the founder and ceo of illinois clean fuels and then to my left we have mark fitz who is an advisor to illinois clean fuels and also president and ceo of a company called star oil co and steven we're going to start with you Happy to be here. I'd love to sort of know the beginnings of how you got to where you are today and then what led you to be here sitting on the podcast. So I, I, I sometimes like to make the joke that I'm, I'm, I'm a recovering finance guy. I uh, used to run a hedge fund for about five years before I uh, started up the company. And what got me into the space originally was actually the supply side of oil. As I was running the fund, I was doing a bunch of research and found a really deep rabbit hole where you know you start looking at how much oil has been found out there in the world, how much are we producing, how much are we finding relative to how much we're producing. And you quickly discover that we haven't actually found more oil than we've used anywhere in the world in a given year since about 1983 or so. And on a uh, you know all-in basis, like last year, we pulled about 20 barrels out of the ground for every one barrel of new reserves that we discovered, which is obviously highly not sustainable. And given that everything about our entire modern economy runs on oil, uh, well, obviously, if that supply is not going to be there, that represents a rather large problem to everything in the portfolio. So the more research I started doing, the more I just confirmed that, yeah, wait a minute, there, there is a significant problem here. And that eventually got me into a strong focus on alternative fuels. 
So I started off investing in a company that was working on their own version of the uh, Fischer-Tropsch technology, which is one of the processes that's available for production of alternative fuels, and led me to learn a whole lot more and eventually get to a point where I decided, you know what, I should, uh, you know, found a company and actually, uh, you know, try and do something about the problem. Yeah, we founded uh, Illinois Clean Fuels in 2006, and uh, the project actually originally started off as a coal-to-liquids project. Uh, you know, we weren't focusing on carbon at all. It was entirely about alternative fuel production and doing it in a way that's cost-effective compared to oil. And the best process that's been proven at scale to really do that has been pioneered originally in Germany uh, and was scaled up in South Africa, Qatar, uh, Malaysia, China for the conversion of coal or natural gas to alternative transportation fuel. And that's the Fischer Tropsch where you're basically taking carbon dioxide and turning it into carbon monoxide? Uh, Carbon dioxide and hydrogen, yeah. So uh, yeah, so uh, you, you produce what's called syngas, uh, which is uh, a mix of hydrogen and carbon monoxide, which is a ba- kind of a basic input building block that's used in all sorts of interesting forms of uh, you know uh, organic chemistry. So whether you're producing fuels or fertilizers or plastics or other things, a lot of that all goes through syngas. Um, Basically, things that make the economy work. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. The basic kind of raw materials that uh, sort of sit under everything. And then as we were going through the technology selection process and you know, sort of figuring out, okay, specifically, how do we want to build this plant? I was blessed to, uh, very early on in the arc of the process, my co-founder, uh, Dr. Saliba, who's our, our technical head, and he was the head of the chemical division at uh, Sassel, which is the world's largest synthetic fuel plant in South Africa. It's a, uh, 160,000 barrels a day. It's about five times the scale of what we're looking to build uh, as a massive, massive facility. Facility, but you know he has an encyclopedic knowledge about all of the technologies. So we were over uh, in Europe at a technical conference looking at processes, and we found a way that we can actually use biomass as a major part of the process without stepping outside of a proven technology envelope, which you know previously I just sort of assumed that was something that you know nobody's invented a way to do it yet. And uh, as we came to discover. It is not a technology problem. You know, this is something that has been done at scale and has been proven. We just simply need to build the facility with the off-the-shelf parts that are already available. Wow. There's so much that I want to talk about there, but we have another <laughs> guest here. But I wrote some notes. So the reason why I was so excited about this podcast is because I worked for over two and a half years at the Combustion and Catalysis Lab at Columbia University when I was an undergrad. I loved thermodynamics. Shout out to my former CCL people who we just had an email going around for the first time in a couple of years. Thanks. So before we do that, because there's so much I want to talk about when you're saying it's not an issue of technology. I mean, it's a matter of putting together these parts. I want to dive deeper into that. But first, Mark, do you want to introduce yourself? Well, so uh, my family owns an oil company, mm-hmm. which I am now the primary owner and CEO and president of. One of the conditions to go to work there was they would indulge me to play with biodiesel back in uh, 2000. Then we saw while I was playing with that and they were indulging me, uh, moving a little bit of B20 a little bit of B99 or B100 back then. It was before it was subsidized. Sorry, can yeah. you explain yeah. what those things mean? So B99 is, is 99% biodiesel. So the way the law works, the way it tends to work is 
you blend a gallon of diesel and 100 gallons of biodiesel and you can get a blender's credit or realize a renewable industry number, which is an EPA market carve out for biofuels. Mm -hmm. So under George Bush and then Barack Obama, they expanded this renewable fuel standard, which creates a value for ethanol, biodiesel, advanced biodiesel, renewable diesel, which Stephen's talking about would be in that category. Can I just keep yeah. derailing you? Yeah. What, what's the difference between ethanol and biodiesel? Well, ethanol is alcohol and uh, it is a very simple chemical reaction. And uh, it is, Stephen, me disagree on this quite a bit. I'm a pretty big fan of ethanol for what it is. It's not a future fuel, but it is definitely uh, something that's there. Biodiesel is taking vegetable oil and you're reacting vegetable oil in the presence of methanol, which is an alcohol and a catalyst. And you make basically a product that on a bench looks a lot like diesel, which is biodiesel. Methyl ester is the molecule. Essentially, it's a very easy energy, low energy project. It's a high energy fuel, waste vegetable oil, you can get 80, 90% reduction in CO2 emissions. Virgin soy, you know what you're looking at. I realize there are a lot of people who criticize monocrops, food versus fuel, those types of debates, but we are a carbohydrate and fat rich world and a protein poor world. The ability to take that oil out of soy, realize the protein, create a high value fuel, especially for the lower grade, non-food grade stuff. It's got a lot of value. It appeals to me. Um, it also smells like popcorn out of a tailpipe, which is a pretty cool deal <laughs> that uh, renewable diesel is yet to figure out, but I'll, I'll deal with that. I like yeah. popcorn. That's more yeah. pleasant than you know walking by an idle car and just intaking their yeah. exhaust gas. Uh, dairy digesters. I we, love, love the whiff of those. With the FT synthetic product, uh, you, you, you get to uh, kind of revisit your childhood, though, because if you uh, pull open the beaker and you take a smell of it, it kind of smells like Crayola crayons. Oh, interesting. So uh, you, you just meant, mentioned FT, that's the Fisher Trophs process. And so I just want to back it up a little bit for mm -hmm. our less science literate uh, listeners. You guys, I'm sure we're all familiar with the different phases of matter. There's gas, there's liquids, and there's solids. And you guys are kind of touching on a couple of them, which is, Mark, you were talking about liquid fuels, liquid biodiesel. Yeah. And you too were talking about that from a roundabout way, which is we use biomass, we burn it or pyrolysize it, gasify it. We create syngas. And then that gas could then be used to create a more purified liquid version. So while it's similar, there's a different process here where you guys are working with when it comes to ethanol and creation through uh, corn, it's a different process. And what uh, Steve, Steve's pulling something out of the bag. What is that, Steve? It's like that, a dusty <clears throat> that pellet. That used to be municipal garbage. And that's what actually will be the primary energy input into our process. So we're taking wastes that would otherwise be going to a landfill and that's what it looks like after you process it. You strip out the metals, the glass, the high-value recyclable stream. That's essentially the non-recyclable fraction of garbage after it's been pelletized and is ready to go in for energy use. And that's before you burnt it. That's just like all... Well, technically, we don't burn it. We chemically convert it. So we break it apart to hydrogen and carbon and then reassemble those molecules into something far more useful. To describe it, 
you basically burn it without oxygen, which changes what occurs with it. And then you have a usable stew of gas that mm-hmm. you can then do wizardly stuff on, right? <laughs> so when you, you, you pyrolyze it, right? That's yeah. The, that's uh, the word there. Well, uh, gasification, technically. Gasification, Pyrolysis yeah. works slightly differently, but... So in the absence okay. of oxygen. So when you said technically don't burn it, I'm like, what are you what is the magic you're using? But yeah, okay. <laughs> gasification, meaning you have an absence of oxygen and you raise the heat and the hydrocarbons are able to break down into carbon monoxide and hydrogen gas. Just for the listeners, just just visualize like Doc Brown and the DeLorean if the DeLorean was the size of an oil refinery. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Amazing. Um, should we should we let Mark finish his story? So Mark, I, you, I just want to change company. the name of the business to Flux Capacitor Inc. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's now that I know that's on the table as an analogy. You need to take it up a notch. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, before we do that though, I have one thing. When we're talking about this gasification process, and you mentioned this in your intro, like it's not a matter of technology. What do you do with the tar? Because that's what I was doing research on was like, you've got all this tar. When you burn things or gasify them, whichever one, you've got all this extra stuff. It's not all hydrogen. It's not all carbon. So there's this really sticky stuff that gets in your pipeline and just ruins everything. So Mm -hmm. it makes it really, really expensive. What are you guys doing there? Yeah. So this actually uh, kind of feeds into actually what Mark and I did just right on the way over here. So uh, we were just a couple minutes early and you're conveniently located uh, about you know, 10 minutes from one of my very favorite places in Seattle, which is Gasworks Park, which is an old coal and oil gasifier that uh, is kind of like an ancient early version of uh, what sits on the front end of our process. So the modern gasifiers have figured out how to fix and eliminate uh, a lot of these big environmental drawbacks. You're entirely correct at identifying the TARS as a major, major problem. So the very early versions of gasifiers, just took all the inconvenient bits and dumped them in the river because, I mean, I guess that's what we did back in, you know, the 1920s. And for that reason, both uh, the harbor in downtown Portland and the area under Gasworks Park are super fun sites. And there's a lot of nasty stuff that's in those tars. Well, the modern gasifiers uh, actually take those tars and they recycle them back into the process. So, you know, these are oxygen-blown gasifiers. So we have a giant air separation plant on the front end that produces pure oxygen that feeds into the, uh, uh, the process. And at the hearth of this gasifier, it's running at something like 1300 C, right? Mm -hmm. It's extremely hot. Mm -hmm. And it's hot enough that when we recycle those tars back in, it completely just disassembles the molecule into hydrogen and carbon. And the only thing that's left coming out the bottom of the process is a uh, slag that uh, is basically glass. So anything that doesn't get converted into gas is locked up in glass uh, that comes out the bottom of this uh, process. And that's an inert, non-leachable material. You can use it for roadbeds, building material. That was one of the things we were very specific about in our technology selections. We wanted to select a process that we were for sure wasn't going to produce fly ash as a byproduct. So that's another thing that commonly comes as a byproduct of combustion or gasification is 
you end up with a bunch of ash that uh, then if you don't reuse it correctly can become environmentally problematic. So there's no fly ash as a byproduct of this either. So the next step in the process that happens after gasification, once we have this chemical soup that comes out, which is mostly hydrogen and carbon with a few other, you know, bits mixed into it, because it, you know, if you're feeding it garbage, it's got everything that comes in garbage, which is everything. Part of the fundamental chemistry of synthetic fuel production, we have to clean up that gas down to the parts per billion level to ensure that there's no impurities that make it downstream into the uh, Fischer-Tropsch process, or it would poison the catalyst and shut the plant down and we'd lose a whole lot of money. So we go through a super tight syngas cleanup step where we capture elements like sulfur, heavy metals, and pertinent to today's discussion, all the excess CO2 that we don't need for fuel production because downstream we need two hydrogens to one carbon to make a diesel fuel molecule. Then once we have our pure hydrogen and carbon in the right ratio, it goes into the catalytic process that builds that back up into a diesel fuel molecule. And that's how you make biodiesel? Technically, or, what we're producing is a synthetic product, so it would be branded as renewable right. diesel or a, a sustainable jet fuel. Because your um, input is garbage. Yeah, it's a branding thing. Well, the, the tech somewhat. is a next-generation biofuel. Pardon? So it is a next-generation biofuel. Mm -hmm. His product is not – like biodiesel is its own molecule. He's creating diesel or jet fuel or kerosene, and it is ultra-pure, clean, and consistent, which makes it superior to petroleum's product that they refine. It's literally a step forward. Yeah, it's yeah. renewable diesel. Is that what you called it? Uh, yeah. So the, the fuel that comes as a result has zero sulfur, zero aromatics, and a very high cetane rating, which means when it burns, it burns much more completely than conventional fuels. So you get a significant reduction across the board of the tailpipe in you know, the conventional pollutants. And then what makes it really exciting relative to you know, the climate side and decarbonization is the excess CO2 that's left over in the process. We capture and lock underground in geologic storage. And so in combination with the biomass fraction in waste, it allows us to completely eliminate the life cycle footprint of the fuel and actually get down to a negative emission. So we actually physically pull more carbon out of the air and lock in the ground than is re-emitted when the fuel is burned. So uh, we, it's, a, it's actually a climate solution. Ha, listener, if you didn't know why we had these guys on, now you know. <laughs> this is a form of carbon removal. And the word to throw around here is this is kind of the purest circular economy, right? We talk about, you oftentimes you hear about circular economy, but you're taking carbon that would have gone into the atmosphere. And now you're saying we're going to make another use of it. And also, by the way, we're going to store it and we can basically net out and create a net negative emission. And Stephen, what you're doing is really cool. You're totally on the bleeding edge of what seems like the best of the best fuels. Not all fuels are created equal, it seems. It's sort of hinting at it. And so I'd love to take a step back, I think, in terms of like I see some waste to energy plants vying for, you know, renewable energy portfolio standards that might allow them to get certain credits. And it seems like that's fine if it is good, but it might create some local pollutants that your process is taking care of. And so I'm kind of curious, how do, how do you position yourselves and not to trash talk others on the air because we wouldn't want to do that, but how do some of the other productions, where do some of the other fuel productions fall short? 
So I, I guess there's kind of two two ways to look at that. Are you talking on the fuel side or on like waste elimination? Because there there are sort of waste to energy plays on both sides of that that use different processes and technologies. Uh, maybe it's helpful if you can distinguish all of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, so waste <laughs> to uh, uh, a lot of times when people talk about waste to energy, I would say 97% of the time they're going to be talking about the production of electricity. If you look at what they're doing in Europe, they're doing some pretty remarkable things where they uh, have functionally eliminated landfills in about seven countries over there, maybe more, uh, where uh, they're they're down to less than 1% of their waste stream actually goes to landfills. So they're either recycling or converting to energy, you know, uh, virtually the entire waste stream. In the U.S., we only recycle about 39% of our waste stream and we also, uh, of the portion that is technically recycled, we've got a crisis going on there too, because China stopped accepting our dirty commingled plastics. And so we're, we're having to really rapidly rejuggle the way the entire waste system is, is running just to process the material we're already capturing. So I, I always like to say, uh, you know, the, the U.S. is the Saudi Arabia of garbage. Yeah, we have a tremendous amount of energy potential feedstock here just waiting to be used. But That's a good analogy. Yeah, but uh, you know there are clean and dirty ways to do that. So most of the waste to energy that's been done in Europe essentially takes something that's kind of a slightly higher tech but retrofitted coal-fired power plant and feeds in the waste similar to those pellets sitting on the table in front of us, burns that and produces electricity. What we're doing is fundamentally different. Gasification, you know, as we discussed, we're, we're not doing combustion. We're not uh, you know fully oxidizing the molecule, we're disassembling it and reassembling it. And particularly in combination with the syngas cleanup, the fact that we don't have fly ash in our process, and uh, critically, the combination with carbon capture and storage, we believe this is absolutely the maximum available control technology in the world for disposing of waste uh, and recapturing the energy in it with you know, no environmental side effects. So I would, you said a lot there and that I want to bring it back out a little bit to the high level of like the landscape, the ecosystem when we were talking about fuels, whether Mm -hmm. they're these renewable waste to energy to fuels or biodiesel and biofuels. So Mark, I have a question for you. Why aren't we using biodiesel or biojet fuel in our planes and our ships nowadays? So biodiesel gels at temperatures like what we have outside. So you've got a real concern at 30,000 feet how it's going to perform. Mm -hmm. Um, But the feedstock that makes biodiesel can be made into renewable diesel and is the largest renewable diesel plant in the world is in Singapore. It's a hydrogenation plant. And they're using palm oil, which um, the Pacific Northwest is not a fan of palm oil. A lot of environmentalists (laughs) Um, are not a fan of palm oil. Mm -hmm. First time I met him. Portland was proposing a 20% biodiesel mandate and Imperium Renewables, who's a Seattle company, actually, I believe their offices used to be at the Starbucks building before Starbucks took it, said, we're going to build this 100 million gallon biodiesel plant. What will be the feedstock? Because that's the big question. Mm -hmm. That's the question he answers that others don't. What will be the feedstock? And they said, palm oil. Because of that, a month later, because of their fundraising, a month later, National Geographic had an article about deforestation in Indonesia with palm plantations. You know, and it became a hot button issue. So you can make renewable jet fuel 
from vegetable oil. The question is, is where does that come from and what, what are the pressures you're pushing? Because, you know, first law thermodynamics, right? You got to basically take energy from someplace to make it something. Cast off garbage has value. Agricultural waste has value that's being lost right now. So that's where he's at versus let's grow more vegetable oil, you know, because that has a limit. Like right now, California with their cap and trade and low carbon fuel standard system, 2017, they took a quarter of a billion, 250 million gallons of renewable diesel product, uh, primarily from two plants, uh, Nesty's plant in Singapore and Renewable Energy Group's plant in uh, Louisiana, right, was the source. There's more coming on, but all of them are chasing typically a very narrow waste stream where he's seeking to actually monetize garbage, which we have far more of. So, so. we wouldn't be competing with food crops. Exactly. Uh, food versus fuels was one of those things that we were mm -hmm. sort of watching acutely. And uh, Mark and I have had more than a few evenings where uh, we, uh, well, I particularly evangelized over beer about, uh, you know, how corn ethanol wasn't such a wonderful idea because of land use change and all of these things. You know, I, I'm, I'm perhaps less sold by the protein argument than he is. But uh, <laughs> when you're looking at uh, the environmental impact of what you're doing in anything in the energy space or, or perhaps any space, uh, there is no such thing as a battery limit uh, in nature. Right. If you're looking at a life cycle impact of something, you have to look all the way upstream, downstream, midstream, you know, what you're doing through the whole process to really actually do the math of, uh, of you know, is this smart or not? Uh, and uh, when it comes to biofuels, uh, there's definitely been some complicated and highly political math that uh, has gone on around you know, how do you draw that assessment of uh, you know climate impact, for instance, of uh, you know corn ethanol that was produced in Illinois is distributed in California. Do you factor in the fact that the corn that you didn't grow for human consumption resulted in deforestation in the Amazon rainforest to grow more soybeans? That's uh, a, a part of the calculus. And with such an abundant available waste stream and municipal garbage, I view that as sort of the starting point for where we should really be going for alternative fuels because uh, we have this enormous energy resource that is presently literally being wasted in a hole in the ground where we just hope it doesn't leak too much methane into the atmosphere and pollute the aquifer. He's crossing his fingers for <laughs> the podcast well, listeners. To, to mention something too that you're leaving out though, is, is somebody who, there is no silver bullets. There's only silver buckshot, right? That's Absolutely. that argument. Yeah. And when you look at all these different biofuels, people are expecting one to be a dominant solution. We have this Gilligan's Island policy. Mm -hmm. 10 years, ethanol is the solution. Then it isn't. Then 20 years pass. Then 10 years, biodiesel is the solution. Then it isn't. Now EVs are this panacea, though, you know, you lose a lot of power transmitting electricity to sit in a battery and also dissipate, right? Well, also, you, know, you could have some DC transmission lines that are being developed and could but the, decrease but those losses. You're, you're, back, you're back, back. back to the silver <laughs> bullet, though. Like you've got all these, in, in reality, of these dynamic things where dominant technologies begin to take traction in ways that no one could predict. What I've looked at a lot, and I've been talking to Stephen for crud over 10 years, right? <laughs> yeah, like, uh -huh. And uh, where it is, is you have these logical arguments like you just presented, like, well, then we look at DC and then, then you have your next thing. And then you have yeah. battery tech needs to follow Moore's law. And, and you, know, you, you move step by step and you still don't have a solution. You're 20 years away from what you want tomorrow, right? But when you look at renewable fuels, 
where do I get a feedstock to then harvest energy to reform it into a liquid fuel, which is very energy dense, easy to transfer around. We have systems to handle it. When you talk vegetable oil, which is the most popular one, you've got an establishment providing biodiesel, you know, hundreds of millions of gallons, but it's kind of tapped out and it's hugely subsidized to get there. You know, you look at, you know, so the plants that are seeking wood waste is the next step or agricultural waste still have this, it's super light and hard to move around. The logic of going to garbage, you move from being a 10 million gallon plant that you hope you even get a million out of. Because a lot of these biodiesel plants that built for 20 million, 30 million aren't hitting even close to that, you know, to where the scale can step up for the money and you actually have a next generation refinery with offtake that literally impacts the market. You know, that's a pretty big deal. When the market's tight and there's not diesel fuel, having a refinery of his size may actually move the whole country, you know, tenths of a cent that, you know, for capacity. It's, it's a different scale and idea. That's incredible. Yeah. So there's a huge opportunity in here. We're convinced. You guys are convincing us right now on the air. I also love the way that you're framing this because I think it's- oh, We right. disagree on the bones behind most of everything, but, but we agree <laughs> on the tack and where the market's going to be. And and that there's no silver bullet. And I think from a very carbon-centric focus, you know, we say if you mobilize- fossil carbon or really any carbon that's staying in the atmosphere, you need to remove an equal or greater amount to balance the atmospheric books. Mm -hmm. And also, if you don't want to mobilize that carbon, then find ways to make use of carbon by recycling it out of the air. That's just a comment. There's no question. The question I really wanted to go to is in the opportunity space. So you have a very promising technology. Based on the name of your company, let me guess, you're in Illinois. Yeah. So the plant site will be about three hours south of Chicago in the, uh, the wonderful small town of Mattoon, Illinois. And so it starts with one. It starts with one plant to prove it. So what can we expect from IC Fuels and what what's it going to take for the world to see, wow, this is really setting a standard that we just want to replicate globally? Well, I, and I would say the, the beauty of the way we're putting this together is that, you know, individually, any of the components of what we're doing has already been done at scale, right? Uh, I mean, we're one-fifth the size of the synthetic fuel plant in South Africa that's doing coal to liquids, but, you know, the fundamental process chemistry has been proven and scaled. It's in the integration of, uh, you know, uh, synthetic fuel processes that have you know been pioneered for you know 70 years now carbon capture and storage which has been demonstrated at scale and the use of biomass in uh, the feedstock material and the recapture of waste that uh, you combine those three things together and you know we were talking earlier about sort of one plus one equals three right we start to kind of kill a lot of birds with one stone so what's held back biofuel adoption right the reason it hasn't really gone all the way to scale is because it simply can't compete on cost. We're going to a symposium here for the next two days uh, talking about how do we scale up sustainable jet fuel production. I've been working with the Commercial Alternative Aviation Fuels Initiative since 2006. And you know the, the aviation community and airlines spent a lot of money trying to push us forward, uh, testing, certification, all of that. But oh, yeah. uh, I mean, as, as Mark can attest, the, the, the product simply isn't available in the market right now. Right. And the reason for that is airlines can't afford to pay a four or five dollar gallon premium for product. The, the rumor is that the Alta Air plant in California is over ten bucks a gallon. 
Yeah, uh, I, I guarantee you that the couple large buyers that I know at a couple airlines would not pass go on that one. So to bring it to scale, you have to get your production cost down to where you can go directly toe to toe with the incremental barrel of oil on the market, which today is fracked oil from the Permian Basin in Texas. You know, that that's where, you know, the overwhelming majority of new oil production in the world has come from is fracking in the U.S. of the last three, four years. So you have to meet that price point on an unsubsidized basis if you want something that's going to actually be able to be applicable globally because most places don't have renewable fuel standards, low carbon fuel standards, all of this Christmas tree of subsidies that you know have supported the larger science experiment around biofuels that we've been working through. So once you've got that production cost down, you've got a model that can be copied everywhere in the world where you have people and garbage and ideally the ability to store carbon geologically. And that's the catch 22 though, right? Because you're saying we need to have a good price point, but how do you get a good price point? You fight that learning curve by doing to get those resources. So we don't have enough resources when it comes to our access to these fuels because there's no good price for it and it just feeds into itself. So how do you overcome that? Well, the the key answer there is scale, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, If you want to do a a small thousand barrel a day (laughs) plant, your cost per daily barrel of capacity is going to be double you know, what it is if you're going for a 30,000 barrel a day plant that you know, is more akin to a typical oil refinery. And that's just the, the physics of, you know, the, the only thing that changes from a chemistry perspective is the diameter of the pipes, right? I mean, it's a reason that a big wind turbine makes a lot of money and a small wind turbine uh, is a science experiment. Right. So, uh, you know, scale is a major piece of that. There are other elements, uh, if you look at it in a broader sense of, you know, what's your feedstock? Where did it come from? How far do you have to transport it? What's your downstream distribution logistics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's a little more complicated than just sort of a, a broad brush stroke. You know, you have to be smart when you deploy it. But, you know, what we aim to demonstrate with this facility is it is possible to produce fuel that is toe-to-toe competitive with conventional fuel without any reliance on subsidy. And uh, that this is a model that can then be copied all over the world. So I want to go back to something that you touched on earlier, which which was airlines. Mm -hmm. Um, Christoph and I had the pleasure of meeting Aaron Stash from United Airlines. And I actually ran into him last week at GreenBiz. And I love what they're doing at United. So all of their flights out of LAX and SFO are fueled by Biojet. But one of the things that Aaron has presented to us uh, and to the groups are there's a limit to access to these refineries. There's no bio refineries to run our planes and run have this be more than SFO and be more than LAX. So mm-hmm. just back to this scale point, organizations, businesses are looking for stuff like this, but it's a matter of how do we get to that scale that can meet their business needs so they can continue to run their operations mm-hmm. is, a, is a tricky point. Also, if I can tag on the... <laughs> theme here with airlines. So Corsia, it's international carbon offset yep. reductions. So for, you know I, know, I forget these acronyms all the time, but Corsia and IKO is uh, something that we're looking at here at Nori. And Corsia is currently under development. Um, and another thing Aaron from United was telling me, which is not news, is that they're in a holding pattern when it comes to offsetting mm-hmm. uh, because they're trying to, they're waiting to see what Corsia is going to um, end up being, what it's going to require from airlines. So it's really interesting 
interesting now to hear you talk about, okay, you've got these, whatever you call them, renewable fuels or biofuels, and then this carbon sequestration and storage piece. I think that's like where airlines need to start thinking about this, right? Where it's not only a way of providing services to fly people without a carbon input, but also to sequester carbon. Well, and and some of the airlines are really leading on this and have been for some time. I mean, United CEO just came out and made a uh, a very bold declaration that they're going to reduce the carbon footprint of their airline by 50%. That's ambitious. Was it, what, 2030? They're Uh, counting on you, Stephen. uh, Well, (laughs) we should talk. (laughs) (laughs) And and United's not the only one. There are many airlines. In fact, major international oil companies are now starting to get really serious about this. We've been working closely with the uh, one group, which is the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, which uh, is a, uh, a major fund that was created by the world's 13 largest oil companies to drive forward carbon capture and storage technology. And they're backing some of the, uh, you know, the critical innovation in this space. But yeah, it's going to be a coalition of you know, everyone involved in the entire value chain required to make this happen. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative is meeting this week or next week at the CERA event, uh, C-E-R-A, if people are interested in looking that up. And they are going to have a few different startups and not-so-startups pitching innovations in this space and how do we address some of these issues so that they can incorporate it into their business. Mm -hmm. Which will have happened by the time this podcast airs. So you, listener, can go check it out and (laughs) check out all those amazing startups. I just want to comment as it relates to oil and gas. You know, here we are environmentalists who are trying to reverse climate change, not single-handedly, but by building a voluntary market to draw CO2 out of the atmosphere. But we're not saying oil and gas, you have no seat at this table. We're actually saying oil and gas, you have a central seat at this table. It's only with collaborating with the large engineers who have been, quite frankly, part of creating this problem to empower them to be part of the solution. So, Mark, I want to pass it to you as an oil and gas guy. How you see mindset shifting in terms of actually some of the greatest environmentalists are these industrialists? So John Rockefeller, when he had a monopoly, said that he focused on the, the value running with the crude. So the feedstock making the fuels is where the value is at. He's changing feedstock. Now, if your business is built completely upon inventories below the ground being realized – you're never going to think about a different feedstock. What you're seeing, though, is there are others – as the market kind of changes and development is changing, you're seeing an interest. And then you also have the the carbon regulations like California has. He described them as a subsidy, but they're a market where they're attaching a value to carbon. So here in the Pacific Northwest, Philip 66, who's a major refiner, announced a joint project with Renewable Energy Group to build a renewable diesel plant at – Similar to scale of what Stephen's talking about next to a refinery. I believe it's uh, Sinclair is a large privately – I believe they're privately held oil so. company. Uh, they're definitely closely held if they're public. You know what I mean? Somebody says the majority of the stock. But uh, they've got a number of plants that are far smaller that have a, all their products being taken off and it's it's being sold at a huge premium over oil. So my expectation is looking at that and then you go one other step. It's superior technology. So when you talk about, you know, emissions and closing the loop on CO2, you're thinking about this 
CO2 is a mix of the atmosphere. Take it even further and think about the tailpipe and the pollution that comes out of an internal combustion engine. I believe EV is going to penetrate deeply into gasoline and we're going to see that market change, but I don't think diesel is going away for a good 10 or 20 years. You're not going to find a battery that pushes 105,000 pounds down the road as reliable as diesel does. You know, the joke is when people complain about diesel prices, push your truck a block and tell me it's not worth five bucks a gallon, right? Mm-hmm. You know, looking at that. So his product is dry, clean, and very consistent coming out of his process. Petroleum, they're distilling, they're doing a similar process where they're cracking and rebuilding a molecule, but they're mixing that product based on what they get out of the stew that is crude. Uh, in that, you've got various volatile organic compounds, you've got dirt, you've got water, that when it, it combusts in the engine, comes out through that tailpipe, even through a particulate trap, you have things that are being created. He's reducing those emissions with this tax. So as they look ahead that the fact that this is a potential and you have regulators looking at the fact they can have a cleaner tailpipe, I, I think that's what's going to drive the tech. But it won't drive it now. It's going to take Stephen to build his plant for them to say this this makes total sense. Well, this has been great. We're getting to the top of the hour and probably time to start wrapping things up. So any final words? Where can people go to learn more about this project? What do you want our listeners to do? Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, our website is www.icfuels.com, I-C-F-U-E-L-S. And we've got a, a little bit of content up there uh, where you know, we talk about uh, some of the process and uh, what it is and how it works. Uh, obviously invite the listeners if they're interested in learning more please don't hesitate to reach out I believe my email address is up on the uh, the website and uh, we've got uh, far more detailed uh, stuff that uh, you know isn't uh, out on the public facing so yeah I'd love to work with anybody that's uh, interested in helping advance the cause here Great. Well, thank you guys for joining us and for taking the road trip up here. And well, you were at a conference anyways, but it was good to have you here. I really enjoyed this conversation. This will be fun. See you next time. Thanks so much. All right.